Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Rackless Shadow by John Blaine. Volume 7. All Uvula Audio books are in the public domain. Chapter 19. Rick's Gadget Works. Hartz and Brandt paced the floor of the living room before Rick, Barbie, and Scotty. They sat on the floor while Dismal, the hero of the day, sat enthroned in the chair. You might have been killed, Rick's father said chasing off after those men like that. But it had to be done, Dad, Rick pointed out. And we have the goods on them now. Really? Have you? Harson Brandt stopped his pacing and looked at his son. I'm not so sure. You found the laboratory, yes, but having a lab isn't illegal. Those men might even be able to squeeze out of holding you prisoner. Didn't you trespass? And didn't you smash their equipment? But they shot at the plane, Rick protested. And they even tried to force me down with that stolen biplane. Those things would be hard to prove, Hartson Brandt said, unless we can find out the name of the traitor. I have some ideas, Dad, Rick said thoughtfully. First, the messages on the barn. We know that they were written with special paint. We know it took special lenses to read the messages. If we could find those lenses, that would tell us something. Do you think that the traitor would just leave them lying around? Hartson Brandt asked dryly. There's one thing we haven't considered. Even if we catch the traitor, we still won't have the top man. Why couldn't the traitor be the top man? Rick said, puzzled. We assume that they are trying to wreck our experiment in order to leave a clear field for a rocket of their own. Evidently, through this traitor, they have kept abreast of our developments, planning to use our knowledge to complete their own rocket. That means they are after the Stone Ridge grant of $2 million. That's right, Dad, Rick agreed. I can't think of any other answer. The traitor could not apply for the grant in his own name. Don't you see that? The fact that he has been working with me would point the finger of guilt at him immediately. That means that the gang is led by an outsider, a scientist of some reputation. The traitor and the others would be mere hirelings, working for a share of the $2 million. Scotty spoke up. Couldn't Scarface be the leader, sir? I have never known a man such as you describe, Hartson Brandt said, and I know every scientist working in this field. No, I'm afraid the identity of the top man is still a secret. We should certainly have those men picked up, though, Rick suggested. The police could get them when they return to the factory. I'll phone immediately. Hartson Brandt walked out to the switchboard to call the state police in Whiteside. There's one thing you still haven't explained, Barbie, Rick said. How on earth did you wind up at the factory? Well, Barbie answered, I listened in while you were talking to Scotty. When you didn't come back right away, I thought you were having some fun Dismal and I should get in on. So we took a boat and went over. I never dreamed that... I guess you didn't, Rick said. Scotty suddenly snapped his fingers. 
The love letter. We forgot about that. I didn't, Rick said. Anyway, Jerry has it. I doubt that'll tell us much. That code stops me, Scotty remarked. And why did they change the sign from smoke to drink and back again? I think it was to tell the trader that there was a message there for him. He couldn't take the chance of being seen looking through binoculars every day, and that way he would just have to look at the barn and see if there was a message. If so, he could get the glasses. There was no danger of anybody noticing the word change except for aircraft, and then only if a fellow flew over it every day like I do. That's where they slipped up, Scotty agreed. If only we could find the traitor with those lenses on him, or find them in his room. Well, why don't we try? Hartson Brandt came back in. Try what? To find the lenses, Dad. We can search for them while all the men are at the lab. If you'll try to keep them there. Mr. Brandt considered. I don't like it, but I suppose there's no other way. I'm going to the lab right now. The police will be here shortly. Just a minute, Dad, Rick said suddenly. I've been wanting to ask you, how is it that everybody on the staff has a copy of Psychiatry Simplified? That was the code book, you know. It was clever of our man, whoever it was, to use that book. Dr. Judson Chambers, the author, is an old friend of mine, and he sent us all autographed copies. I wish there had been some other explanation. It might have given us a clue. Just concentrate on finding the lenses. I'll go along to the lab. Rick posted Barbie to the front door with instructions to run and warn them if anybody came from the lab, and then he and Scotty went to the long corridor from which branched the combination bedrooms and offices of the scientists. Again, Rick felt guilty at prowling through the belongings of men whom he respected and liked, but as his father had said, there was no other way. Vice's room was the first stop. Look everywhere, he told Scotty. He reached for a desk drawer and began searching. As he inspected the last drawer, he noticed the curled bits of scotch tape stuck at the edge. Scotty, Weiss wasn't lying, he said, indicating the tape. Then he did try to trap the traitor? Yeah, but don't forget, he's the only one besides Dad who has binoculars, Rick reminded him. We've never seen him use them, though, Scotty pointed out, and they're not here now. Yeah, neither are the lenses, Rick said. They moved to the next room. Zircons, he said. We saw him reading the key book to the code, remember? But everybody has a copy, so that's nothing against him. Lenses would be if we find him, Scotty commented. Rick went through the desk while Scotty searched the other furniture in the room. Nothing, Rick said as they finished. That leaves only one place. They went down the corridor and into the last scientist's quarters. Look, Scotty exclaimed as they closed the door. There on top of a bookcase were Weiss's binoculars. Now, Rick said excitedly, if only the lenses were here too. They searched the big room twice before giving up, refusing to believe the lenses would not be in this last place. Then Rick dropped into a chair. No luck. We're sunk, Scotty. And right up there are the very glasses used to read those messages, said Scotty unhappily. I'm sure of it if only the lenses were with them. He reached idly for the glasses. Rick sat bolt upright. Let me see those. He flicked a finger over the end of the binoculars, right where the lenses were mounted. Does this metal look scratched to you? No, but the lens mounts look newer than the rest. Maybe they've been painted recently. Rick scratched at the paint covering 
To his amazement, a large flake came loose, disclosing older paint underneath. They have been painted. Do you think the new lenses have been added? Holy smoke, Scotty exclaimed. Do you think this is what we've been looking for? Well, they must be, Rick said. But why couldn't I read a message on the bar when I looked through them? Scotty shook his head. I don't know. Wait, I've got it. Rick ran from the room with Scotty close behind. Down the stairs they went and across the orchard. Rick headed for the tidal flats, sprinting as fast as he could. They stopped at the bluff, a little breathless, and Rick put the glasses to his eyes. The barn came into focus, and the sign. Scotty, he choked. Look! Scotty took the glasses and held them up to the sign. There, in blue letters against the white of the sign, was the message. Beat it. Don't you see? When we caught Stringfellow here, the sign said, Drink white cream, which was the normal reading. There was no message then. Then why did he have the glasses trained on it? Scotty objected. I don't know for sure, but if he were the one who dropped the radiation shields, he'd have suffered from a slight burn that could have affected his eyes. Besides, he missed a lot of sleep. Maybe he couldn't see the sign without the glasses. Sounds reasonable, but there would have been a message left on the sign from the day before, wouldn't there have been? Well, the paint is special stuff. Maybe the chemical evaporates in a few hours. The cans were tightly covered, remember? That way they could repaint almost every day without painting over the old numbers, because they'd have faded. Remember? We didn't hear them painting out an old message. Then it's Stringfellow, Scotty declared. Right, Rick said grimly. He's the guy who sold us out for a cut of two million. They ran back for the laboratory, and as they reached the door, they could see the scientists inside, working on the final stages of the moon rocket. Hartz and Brandt came to them as they entered. Rick hesitated. How are things going, Dad? If nothing else happens, we should be able to launch tomorrow night on schedule. Nothing more is going to happen, Rick said, and he looked straight at Stringfellow. We found our traitor, Dad. Stringfellow came to his feet startled. Who is it? he asked huskily. Rick took the binoculars from behind his back. Do these answer your question? A faint trace of alarm appeared in Stringfellow's eyes, but he was immediately composed again. No, I don't think they do. We read your secret message on the barn, Rick snapped. Your friends have flown the coop. They have left you holding the bag. I don't have the slightest idea of what you're talking about, Stringfellow said icily. Rick, Hartson Brandt said, what is this all about? I just remembered that it was Stringfellow who was standing at the tail of my plane the day I went to Newark. He was the one who put the message in the tail. Only his friends at the airport didn't get it, and neither did Mac in the black plane. Hartson, would you mind telling me what this is all about? Stringfellow demanded. I'll tell you, Hobart Zircon cut in. I remember now it was you who told me that the lock on the shields was broken, not the other way around. You were arranging a reason for the shields to be down, but I never saw it until now. Of course not, Rick said. Besides, that shields thing was an accident. All the faces turned to Rick. He was trying to steal the Microtron that night, only he heard us coming, and the shields crashed open because he was in a hurry to get away. He didn't have time to put them back. Stringfellow turned white. Do you realize what you're accusing me of? Well, about every crime in the book, including shooting us down. Wasn't that because one of the thugs lost his head? I think that field was a place where you were going to erect your own rocket launcher. A gray look crept over Stringfellow's features. His eyes went to the door. Do any of you know this guy? 
Rick heard the detective's voice say. Rick wheeled. The burly detective was holding a young man in a sports coat and a turned-up hat squarely by the scruff of the neck. Jerry Webster, Rick shouted. Am I glad to see you? No gladder than I am, Jerry said, wrenching free from the relaxed grip of the detective. Every time I pay you a visit, I get manhandled. He held out his hand with a folded slip of paper. Here's your love letter. Rick grabbed at the decoded note. His eyes swept the sheet, and he turned to his father. Listen to this, Dad. The experiment is being delayed to the best of my ability. I will try to steal the tube at my first opportunity. This should delay them until we can complete our work. Rick paused. Signed, J.S. John Stringfellow. John Stringfellow, Hartson Brent repeated huskily, his unbelieving eyes on the man he had trusted. Rick's moment of triumph gave way to unhappiness. He saw the hurt disbelief in Hartson Brandt's face and knew his father was deeply shaken at this overwhelming evidence of Stringfellow's guilt. All eyes turned to Hartson Brandt, and Stringfellow was quick to take advantage of the brief, unguarded moment. The thin scientist made a dive for a drawer in his workbench. Before anybody could reach him, he wrenched the drawer open and grabbed a forty-five automatic. I'll blow a hole through the first man who makes a move he said coldly. I'm going through that door and out of here. Every eye turned to the detective who stood squarely in the middle of the door. Rick saw a little muscle near his temple flick and swell. Fine, then you're going to have to blow a hole in me, the detective said tersely. Come on then. It was a battle of eyes between Stringfellow and the detective. I don't want to hurt anyone, the thin-faced man warned in a hoarse voice. But I, I will if I must. Every man in the room could see the slightest hostile move from any of them would cause Stringfellow's finger to constrict on the trigger. If you won't let me through that door, I'll just go out the back door then. Don't follow me beyond the spot. He nodded to a bench separating him from the others. Slowly, he began to back toward the side door. On the bench beside the scientist lay the electrical shock machine that Rick had constructed and laid so carelessly on the bench. The scientist felt his way slowly, ever so slowly to the bench. Rick's arm stole out toward the wire that trailed from the electrical device. If only he could reach the button in time. Stringfellow's back bumped into the metal bench. With a wild grab, Rick reached for the button and pushed it. A cry of alarm came from Stringfellow's lips as the electrical current shot through him. In the split second when his gun bobbed in the air, Scotty hurled himself across the room, directly against the scientist's legs. Down they went, the man swinging wildly with the butt of his automatic. But a stunning left smashed against Stringfellow's mouth and a roundhouse right landed against his jaw. With a moan of pain, the thin-faced man collapsed in a heap under Scotty's attack. The youth drew back his fist to strike again, but Rick yelled, No, he's done for, Scotty. In a moment, everybody crowded to the boy's side, all asking how they had trapped Stringfellow. Hartz and Brandt put both arms around their shoulders and squeezed hard. Every man in this room owes you a debt he cannot repay, he said, blinking strangely. Chapter 20 A Great Day for Spindrift Rick slept soundly that night. The state police, acting instantly after Hartz and Brandt's call, had gone to the secret lab and rounded up the gang. Even Mac, the missing airport attendant, had been caught. Only Scarface had slipped through the police net, and he was sure to be picked up within a short time, the lieutenant said. 
There was a great crowd gathered at the table when Rick went down to breakfast the next morning. The scientists who had been vacationing had reassembled for the final experiment. Rick greeted them, glad to see all the familiar faces once again. Open face and amused eyes called from the end of the table as the boys sat down. I hear you've been studying uh, to be detective instead of a wire mechanic, Rick. That was Dr. Weiscarver who had invented the rocket fuel. I wish you would tell me the secrets of those inches you've grown since the start of the summer, said a very short, smiling scientist. With all the scientists there and everyone so excited, breakfast was a noisy affair. Even Zircon and Weiss had recovered from last night's events and were their jovial selves again. Looking from the window, Rick could see a crowd of men gathering. There were reporters by the score and men unloading broadcast equipment from sound trucks. The newsreel men were setting up their cameras to get pictures of the proceedings from start to finish. It's a great day for you and your dad, Scotty said. And it almost didn't happen, Rick smiled. It might not have happened if you hadn't been around at the right time. I'll bet old Scarface is still running, Scotty remarked. I hope he is, Rick said seriously. Scotty nodded his readiness to leave, and the two boys rose from the table and strolled into the big yard. Say, Jerry Webster ought to be in this gang of reporters. Let's go look for him, Rick said. They began meandering through the crowd of reporters and guests trying to find the young reporter. Funny he didn't come looking for me, Rick commented. He saw Professor Zircon talking to a group of dignified-looking visitors and headed his way. Excuse me, Professor Zircon. Didn't you drive the speedboat over to pick up the reporters? I did, the professor answered. Did you see Jerry Webster? You remember the young reporter who was dragged into the laboratory yesterday? The one with the note? Zircon rubbed his head thoughtfully. No, I don't believe I saw his face in the boat. But wait, I have a list of reporters here. They all had to show their passes to get in. He reached for a list of names on a nearby table, and Rick peered over his shoulder. There's his name, Rick said when he came to it. Well, he's here then, Zircon said. Rick stared at the stately script. If that's Jerry's signature, though, his handwriting's got a heck of a lot better since high school. Zircon shrugged his shoulders. He's around somewhere. He couldn't have signed this without showing a pass. Rick thanked the scientist and rejoined Scotty. Why the crinkles in the brow? Scotty asked as Rick was walking toward him. I don't know. I guess I'm just jumpy. But I swear that signature I saw on the reporter's list wasn't put there by Jerry Webster. Look, pal, Scotty said, putting a hand on Rick's shoulder. Don't start thinking up more trouble. Everything's going to be fine. Rick grinned. I won't. Wish I could find Jerry, though. They edged their way through the crowd and wandered toward Pirate's Field. There was a curious group around the rocket. The island scientists were explaining it to those standing nearby. As the boys approached, Dr. Weiscarver was saying, Prior to this, gentlemen, this experiment would not have been possible because of the lack of a suitable fuel. Had we used gasoline, for example, more than 8,000 tons would have been needed to throw this rocket into space. The boys joined the crowd, but Rick heard the doctor with only half an ear. He was looking at the faces around him for a sign of Jerry Webster. It is necessary, the doctor continued, for our little baby here to reach a speed of more than seven miles a second in order to break out of the Earth's gravitational field. But won't the rocket burn up at that speed? A voice objected. Friction with the atmosphere would heat it to the melting point. 
That has been taken into consideration, the doctor said. We will start the rocket off at a moderate speed. A reporter spoke up. What do you consider a moderate speed, Dr. Wisecarver? The scientist answered with a grin. Perhaps two miles a second? Another reporter had been figuring rapidly on his pad. Then uh, the rocket will reach the moon in about 35 seconds. Uh, that would be true, Dr. Weiskarper replied, if we maintain the speed needed to tear it away from the Earth's gravity. But you've got to remember that large as the moon is, it's a small target when we consider the distance. We bring the speed down in order that we may control it better. Arson Brandt has calculated his firing table so that the rocket will take almost a minute and a half to reach the moon. Rick was familiar with this information. He drew Scotty away from the launcher. Now what? Scotty asked. Let's take a walk around the island. Scotty followed him down the path toward the boat landing. As they neared the shore, a strong breeze tugged at his hair, and they breathed deeply. Peace. That's wonderful. Scotty said, smiling. Oh, yeah? Rick was pointing excitedly toward the dock. I knew there was something wrong with that signature. Look! A few feet off the dock was a figure standing in a rowboat, waving his arms wildly, and obviously attempting to convince the dock keeper that he belonged on the island. The figure was Jerry Webster. Rick! Jerry shouted as he saw the boys. Tell this guy who I am! Rick ran to the edge of the dock. It's all right, Mr. Huggins, he said to the island's tenant farmer, who was acting as dock guard. Come on in, Jerry. Jerry pulled on his oars, and as he drew closer, Rick could see an ugly welt across his eye and a bump on his head. His clothing was disheveled as though he had been in a fight. What happened? Rick asked as he reached out to pull the boat into the dock. That's what I'd like to know, Jerry panted. I was supposed to attend this shindig today, and I thought I'd get here early. I was walking down the path toward the boat landing on the mainland when all of a sudden, boom, I wake up with these. He pointed to his wounds. Scotty looked at Rick. You were right. There's somebody on this island who doesn't belong here. If I lay my hands on him, Jerry stopped and gritted his teeth. That guy's got my press pass. The worst of it is, I haven't got the faintest idea who he is. I think I have, Rick said. Only one man in the world would want to get onto the island that badly. Scarface. Chapter 21. Scarface Tries Once More. For a moment, Scotty and Rick looked at each other. Then Scotty spoke up. Scarface must be in the crowd at the laboratory right now. Right. And if I know Scarface, he's going to make a last-ditch attempt to wreck the experiment. They started on a dead run for the laboratory, with Jerry limping along behind. Just as they reached the fringe of the crowd gathered before the rocket launcher, Rick stopped short. Oh, what boneheads we are! Jerry should have stayed out of sight. Why? Because if Scarface is in the crowd, he'll see Jerry and know we're wise to him. Look, Rick, this thing is too big for us. Let's tell your father and have the island searched. Rick peered over the heads of the crowd, trying to locate his father. He spied him finally talking to a group of reporters. Stay here, I'll get him. He edged his way through the crowd toward his father. As he arrived at the group surrounding his father, he heard him say, My associates have given me the honor of operating the controls which will launch the rocket. Unfortunately, he smiled as he spoke, 
You cannot stand as near to the rocket as you would like to do, for the temperature at the time the rocket is launched will be 2300 degrees Fahrenheit in this spot here. There were low whistles from the reporters as they scribbled the information on their pads. It was at this moment that Hartson Brandt noticed Rick motioning to him from the edge of the crowd. The scientist excused himself and moved to his son's side. Rick took the smile from his father's face with two words. Trouble, Dad, he whispered. Hartson Brandt's eyes grew serious. What is it, Rick? Rick took his arm and led him away from the crowd. He told him briefly what had happened to Jerry. We have to post guards at every installation around the island, Hartson Brandt said. Then we have to find the man with Jerry's press pass. Rick watched his father hurry through the crowd toward the police lieutenant, who was assisting in the handling of the crowd. He made his way back to where Scotty and Jerry were standing and told them of his father's decision. We're the only ones who have ever seen Scarface, Scotty said. We better help in the search. Rick nodded. And you'd better get those bumps fixed up, Jerry, he advised. And miss out on a story like this, Jerry exclaimed. Not in your life. I'm sticking with you guys. Rick grinned and motioned to the boys to follow. The police were already spreading out through the crowd, and a few had stationed themselves around the rocket launcher in the lab. In a moment, the boys were at Hartz and Brandt's side. Let's not be too obvious about this, the scientist was saying to the lieutenant. I don't want to excite this crowd. I get it, the lieutenant said. Unless he's disguised, it should be easy to find a scar-faced man. The three boys split up and spread out through the crowd. Rick stared at every face. When he reached the group of men from the Stone Ridge Foundation, he peered even more closely. It seemed every one of the dignified gentlemen was wearing a beard. He couldn't go around tugging at all these whiskers to see if they were real. That was certain. But as he wandered innocently through the group of chatting men, he could see that that wouldn't be necessary. There wasn't a false beard in the crowd. Scarface, he decided, would hardly choose so obvious a disguise as a beard anyway. Every second the scar-faced man was free, however, meant that much more of a chance for him to do damage. Rick tried hard not to think of what the man might have planned. He quickened his search of the faces and in five minutes had reached the rope stretched before the rocket launcher. It had been installed to keep the crowd back from the delicate mechanism. He shook his head as he saw Scotty coming toward him. No sign of him. How about you? Not in this crowd, Scotty replied. He looked across Pirate's Field toward the woods. You suppose he'd be hiding in there, waiting his chance? Well, I think somebody else has thought of it, Rick answered, pointing to some plain clothesmen entering the woods. It was more than an hour before the men returned. Rick could see by their faces that their search had been unsuccessful. Hartson Brandt called a conference near the edge of the crowd. With that man free, we must double our guard. Heaven knows what he might be planning to do. He won't do much with us around the place, Lieutenant assured him. Spread out, boys. Keep your eyes open. The men moved to their stations, and Rick thought with the increased guard it would be impossible for Scarface to do anything. But he couldn't convince himself of that. He had seen too many samples of the Scarface man's ingenuity in the past. Once more, this man was forcing them into a waiting position. As the afternoon wore on, Rick's tension increased rather than diminished. At least ten times he left the house and wandered throughout the grounds, hoping to catch a glimpse of the scar-faced man. Each time he returned, Scotty would plead with him to sit down and relax. 
The sun was beginning its day's end plunge in the west, and the crowd had begun stirring in anticipation when the three boys left the house together. Since having his wounds dressed, Jerry Webster had been strangely thoughtful. He walked along silently by Rick's side, and just as they started to enter the door of the laboratory, he stopped and snapped his fingers loudly. I got it at last, he exclaimed. A thing I was trying to think of. Rick was jumpy from tense nerves and started slightly. What are you talking about? Shoes, Jerry answered. I saw his shoes as I fell to the ground. They were two-toned brows with funny hard toes, like they were reinforced with steel. What are we supposed to do, go around looking for shoes instead of faces now? Rick asked. Yeah, it'd be pretty silly, wouldn't it? The young reporter answered. Ah, forget it. The boys wandered into the lab with a nod to the detective guarding the door. The shadows were growing longer now, and the lab's interior was quite dim. In less than an hour, the moon would rise, and then the rocket would be launched. Three workers squatted before the chamber that housed the electron gun. They were dressed in leaded suits and helmets. As the boys came to the door of the room housing the chamber, one of the workers rose and came toward them. It was impossible to tell who it was behind the quartz glass window in the helmet, but when the man raised his hand in salutation, Rick nodded and stood aside to let him pass. At that moment, there was a disturbance at the door behind them. Hobart Zircon was standing in the doorway, waving his arms. Clear a path, gentlemen, he announced. The firing section of the rocket is to be installed now. The worker who had brushed by them returned to the room and helped the other two men lift a gleaming cylinder from the radiation chamber. Rick knew that the reason for the leaded suits was to protect the workers from the radioactive elements contained in the cylinder. This was the firing section, and it emanated invisible deadly rays that would help fire the rocket fuel mixture. Harson Brandt moved in beside Hobart Zircon. His eyes moved anxiously over the heavy cylinder and then swung out over the crowd outside the door. Rick knew what was going through his mind. If Scarface were going to make an attempt at sabotage, now would be a good time. The transfer of the firing section from the lab to the launcher was accomplished, however, without incident. The crowd gave the workers a wide berth as they carried it, well knowing the danger that lay within its walls. The men reached the edge of the field where the rocket launcher stood and set it gingerly in its socket. Then one of the men stood up and unfastened a rope that held the canvas tied around the top part of the rocket. Silence fell over the crowd as the rocket stood revealed in the last rays of the sun. Its weight was more than 100 tons, but the streamlining of the huge spaceship made it appear as thin as a pencil. It seemed incredible that enough power could be generated in the tiny firing section to repel this great ship to the moon. Hartson Brandt fidgeted impatiently as the firing section was installed. As soon as danger from radiation was over, he and Hobart Zircon hurried to the foot of the launcher. The crowd pressed close to the ropes, conscious of the drama being unfolded before them. Rick saw his father make a last inspection of the rocket's innards and then nod to Hobart Zircon. As Hartson Brandt turned from the rocket with a last look at the ship that had taken him so long to bring to reality, Rick knew the emotions that his father must be feeling. It seemed now that if the scar-faced man had intended to make a last wild attempt to wreck the rocket, his opportunity had passed. The rocket was intact now, and the flip of a switch would send it hurtling on its appointed errand far into space. Hartson Brandt and Hobart Zircon walked smilingly away from the poised rocket, the three lead-garbed men following. 
Rick saw one of them stoop as though making a last inspection of the firing unit, and then his attention was distracted by a commotion at the edge of the crowd. What's up? Scotty exclaimed. Julius Weiss was pushing through the crowd, followed by a man whom Rick recognized as one of the laboratory workers. The little man was beside himself as he ran to Hartz and Brandt. Hartson, he cried hoarsely. Hobart, listen. I found Jones in a closet. In a closet, do you hear? There was a noise, and I opened the door and... Somebody slugged me, the workman said. I was just getting into my suit, and somebody sneaked up behind me and woke up in the closet tied up. Scarface. Everybody looked at Rick as he uttered the name, comprehension dawning in their faces. Scarface had knocked Jones unconscious and then taken his suit. The shoes, Jerry Webster yelled suddenly. The shoes, look! He was pointing at the feet of one of the lead-helmeted workers who was just walking away from the crowd. Rick stared at the feet of the worker. The man's shoes were two-toned brown and equipped with hard toes. It's him, Jerry Webster yelled. It's the guy that slugged me. The man in the leaded suit suddenly broke into a run. He reached for the bulky helmet, attempting to wrench it off. With a vault, Scotty was over the ropes and sprinting after the running figure. A flying tackle brought the man down with a crash. Into the dirt they went, the hooded man struggling with his helmet. The force of Scotty's tackle wrenched off the two heavy clasps, and the helmet came free. In desperation, the man swung it high over his head and aimed it squarely at Scotty's face. The vicious blow was never completed, for as the man's arm drew back, Scotty's fist shot forward, straight into the pit of his stomach. Heavy as the cloth of the suit was, it could not protect the man from the paralyzing force of the punch. With a painful whoosh of escaping breath, his arm flopped to his side and the helmet rolled away. A second punch landed and his whole body went limp. Hartson Brandt, Rick, and Jerry Webster were the first ones to reach Scotty's side. He was sitting astride the figure in the leaded suit, pointing a finger straight at the man's face. Scarface, he said simply. Hartson Brandt, however, looked into the scarred face and let out a shocked gasp. Manfred Wessel. A long-forgotten memory flashed into Rick's mind. No wonder he had thought this scarred face familiar. Manfred Wessel had once worked for his father many years before. Then he had drifted away and had been heard of next in Germany. He was suspected of aiding the development of the Nazi rocket bombs. But since precise proof was lacking, he had never been indicted as a war criminal. Later, he had turned up in America and had applied to Harson Brandt for a position on the island staff. Naturally, he'd been refused. Somehow, since then, he had been badly scarred. Rick guessed that a chemical explosion had been responsible. No wonder Wessel had been familiar yet unrecognizable. You were the one, Harson Brandt accused. You were duplicating our equipment, and when the time came, you were going to step forth and claim credit after first destroying our rocket. Until now, Wessel, the world of science has only had a strong suspicion of your dealings, but this, I think, will be ample proof. He must have sneaked into the lab as soon as he got on the island, Rick thought, and waited for an opportunity. Scarface would have known that some of the workers would be dressed in the shield suits, and he had hidden himself, perhaps in the very closet where he had put Jones. Wessel stood with slumped shoulders, the picture of despair. The rest of your gang is already behind bars, Hartson Brandt continued. I think our police lieutenant will be glad to take you to join them. 
Suddenly, Wessel made a diving leap. He broke through the surprised ring of spectators and ran through the orchard toward the airstrip. Instantly, Rick and Scotty were after him, outdistancing the older men, but Wessel's move had taken them by surprise, and he had a good lead. The plane! Scotty gasped. He'll try to get away in the cub. No, Rick said breathlessly. He couldn't start it in time. Wessel swerved and ran in an arc that would take him to the south shore behind the laboratory. The boys were gaining now, running for all they were worth. Behind them, they heard the cries of the others. They passed the lab, and Rick yelled, Go right, Scotty! He himself turned left, realizing that Wessel was approaching the south cliff. They would cut him off. But the renegade was running toward the sea, not trying to reach safety. Rick put on a burst of speed and saw that Scotty was gaining too. Then, Manfred Wessel reached the cliff and leapt far out into space. The boys stopped short at the bluff and looked down at the creaming surf that shattered against the island. They turned away feeling sick. Nothing could live in that rock-fanged sea. Hartson Brandt came up with the others and looked silently down at the surf. He was a disgrace to the sciences, said Hartson Brandt. Then he turned away, and a dangerous man, but... I would not wish to see him end this way. On the heels of his statement, Rick exclaimed, Dad, the launcher! I saw him hanging back when the rest of you left. He and Scotty led the rush back to the field where the gleaming moon rocket rested in its high cradle. There at the base, Hartson Brandt found a small box. He ripped the cover off and touched the mass of gelatin within. Then, with an angry gesture, he ripped loose the wires that connected the box to the cylinder. Frenodyne, he said in a hushed voice, the fastest acting explosive known. His plan was clear, Zircon boomed. The Frenodyne would have acted a split second before the rocket fuel had exploded, just soon enough to shatter the base and send the rocket off at an angle too acute to be corrected by our instruments. We would have surely missed the target. And lost the grant, Hartson Brandt added. Then Wessel would have made a try. But the plan didn't succeed, little Julian Weiss put in, thanks to our young friends here. A shaggy little figure trotted up late as usual. Don't forget Dismal, Rick said smiling. Then they were all walking back toward the lab, except for the reporters who were running for telephones to report the sensational development. I wonder if Wessel knew, Scotty mused. Knew what? Oh, nothing. Only he didn't seem like the kind of guy who would commit suicide. He did, though, Rick answered. He shuddered. We saw him. Let's not talk about it anymore, huh? Let's go shoot our rocket. Okay, Scotty said. Only, well, never mind. Chapter 22. The Launching of the Rocket There was hushed silence in the main room of the big laboratory, Rick found himself holding his breath as Barbie leaned over the control panel where his father was seated. This one, Daddy? she asked. That one, Barbie, Harson Brandt said. Barbie threw the switch. For a tense moment there was silence, then a mighty, diminishing roar shook the island. It was echoed by a great shout from the assembled watchers. The moon rocket was on its way. Rick, with Scotty and Jerry close at his heels, ran for the stairs. He paused long enough to pat Barbie on the shoulder and exclaim, 
Good shooting, sis. At Rick's suggestion, the honor of firing the rocket had been given to Barbie, although Harson Brandt had first offered it to the two boys. He went up the flight of stairs and burst out on the roof where the observatory was set up. Julius Weiss was hunched over the eyepiece of a large telescope, and there was exultation in the very set of his small body. Without taking his eyes away, he said, I have it. I see the trout perfectly. Rick's glance sought the moon, which was rising above the horizon. Out there was the rocket, speeding through infinite space. May we have a look? Julius Weiss tore himself away from the precious sight. I mustn't be selfish, but be quickly, boys, quickly. One after another, Rick, Scotty, and Jerry saw the fiery trail that was a faint line against the dark of the heavens. Then they relinquished the telescope to Weiss and ran back downstairs. Hartson Brandt bent over his controls, his eyes riveted to the instruments and to his radar screen. Hobart Zircon sat before a larger screen, a big oval that glowed with a greenish light. On it were two bands of light from which little pulsations flickered. Without looking up, he indicated the largest point of light. This blip is the moon. His index finger chose a smaller second point. And this is the rocket. The boys stood very still watching. The smaller blip was moving with deceptive slowness across the screen to the larger one. They were getting closer. Now there were only inches between them. Now only fractions. And they merged. From the roof came a piercing shout. The boys charged back up the stairs to find Julius Weiss doing a very unscientific war dance. A direct hit, he shouted joyously. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, right in the ma imbrium. I saw the explosion. I saw it. It was magnificent. What's the ma imbrium? Jerry Webster asked dazedly. No one bothered to explain that it was the largest flat plane on the moon. They were all running downstairs again to where men crowded around a flushed and happy Hartson and Brandt. Hartson, a distinguished-looking man was saying, there can be no doubt that the grant goes to you and your associates. Did you hear that, Scotty? I heard it, Rick. It's great. You have proved that radar control of a projectile is possible at very great distances beyond the atmosphere. This may very well be the pioneer step that will someday see the first man on the moon's surface. I want to take a look. Come on, Rick whispered. With Scotty, he hurried back to the telescope on the roof. Rick looked first, long and searchingly. Right in the center. Take a look, Scotty. Scotty applied his eye to the opening. Where? Oh, that dark spot? Just looks like a shadow. That's it, though. Rick was exultant. The new crater caused by the explosion. That's the rocket shadow, old son. As they solemnly shook hands, a burly figure joined them. It was Hobart Zircon. He said, I think we can start packing our bags now that this is over. Rick saw the twinkle in the huge scientist's eyes. Start packing, sir? Yes, for a short trip. Zircon smiled. He pointed to the moon which rose so serenely above the horizon. We're not through with old Luna yet. It might be exciting, although I suppose both of you would have enough excitement for the present. No, sir, they said. Our next stop is high Tibet, half the world away. Lads, we're going to set up a moon relay. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. 
We hope that you have enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of The Rockest Shadow by John Glenn. Performance copyright 2010 by Uvula Audio. The Rick Brandt theme should have been recognizable by most children of the 60s and 70s as the Johnny Quest theme. The percussion-heavy, big-band jazz theme music was composed by Hoyt Curtin. In a 1999 interview, Curtin stated that the jazz band for the series consisted of four trumpets, six trombones, five woodwind doublers, and a five-man rhythm section. Curtin stated that the band took about an hour to record the main theme, which contained a trombone solo performed by jazz vet Frank Rosalino. Apparently, the musical riff was so complex, the trombone players were physically unable to keep up with the rapidly changing slide positions needed to play. Please feel free to write us at Uvula Audio and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. And check out our MySpace website to contact fellow listeners, myspace.com slash uvulaaudio. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please feel free to vote for the adult or kids book cast so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcast for free from there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you like using the secure PayPal link. In January, after a winter hiatus, Uvula Audio will return with a more adult pulp favorite, with the second novel in the Richard Henry Benson series of The Avenger, entitled The Yellow Horde. This is a story in which Miss Nellie Gray was introduced. She was Benson's young female assistant who was hell on wheels and an expert in the martial art of Aiki Jiu-Jitsu. The story is less heart-wrenching than Justice, Inc. and gets right to the action without all that introductory stuff. It's a lovely piece of overlooked genre lit that we think you will enjoy. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>